Our scripture passage for this evening comes from the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. As we read verses 1 through 6, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see a respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning Be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. O Lord, I pray that you would use your word not only to speak to the wives of this church, but also those who are girls and who are learning from the examples that they see around them, what it means to be a woman. Would you also speak to the men of this church? Give us a love of our sisters And even as we anticipate next week's text, would you make us understanding husbands as well? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's been a few weeks since we had an evening service where I I preached. And uh, I think it was three weeks ago last when we looked at this text before. And I mentioned back then that Peter is talking about what we call the household codes. Uh, in the Greek culture. And you may recall that I, I quoted from Aristotle. Aristotle said that a stable and prosperous society had to be composed of a healthy home. And a healthy home consisted of master and slave, husband and wife, and father and children. Well, in the last passage we looked at, he talked about the relationship of masters and slaves. And so for the next two weeks, we will address the issue of husbands and wives, and we're going to follow Peter's argument and see what he says to both wives this week and to husbands next week. Now, just in case the women sort of feel like they're especially being put in the limelight here, I, I want to remind you that Peter has expectations and obligations for husbands as well, and we will see that. But for this week, in the text at least, his focus is on the women of the church. Peter's immediate focus tonight is a very specific circumstance within the church, but he uses that specific circumstance to give principles that apply to all women. So here is the circumstance. I want you to see uh, if you can sense the dilemma that Peter feels the need to address. In the first century, a wife was expected to be the same religion as her husband. So if a husband was a Christian, culturally, it was just a given that she would go along. She would be a Christian too. And in the same way, if the opposite happened, it was also expected. If a husband was a pagan, she was supposed to be a pagan. And what if the wife has been born again, though? That's, that's the problem here, right? What if the woman is a born-again Christian and her husband is a pagan? 
That becomes a problem, the sort of problem exactly that you would want an apostle to address. Does she go along with her husband? Does she show that kind of submission by joining his religion, becoming a pagan? Or is this a place where that's a bridge too far? So what is Peter going to do? Is he going to play into the culture of the day? Is he going to say, well, I guess she has to be pagan? Well, no, Peter doesn't. One of the things that I think some might sort of be put off by is the fact that Peter spends six verses giving prescriptions to wives and only one verse giving prescriptions to men. Um, It's hard not to wonder, is Peter just being a, a domineering patriarch? Is that what's going on here? Oh, Peter, you just can't resist controlling women, can you? I can just see the sort of the kind of feminist response somebody might be feeling here. And what I want to suggest here is the situation is really quite different from that. Because the more he talks to these women directly, the more he elaborates on the duties of wives, the more he affirms their individual rights and agency as women who are image bearers before God. There's a scholar who summarizes the view of women that was prevalent in Peter's day among the Roman elites. So if you went to the Roman elites and you said, what do you think about women? This is what you would hear. Dominant among the elite was the notion that the woman was by nature inferior to the man because she lacked the capacity for reason that the male had. She was ruled rather by her emotions and was as a result given to poor judgment, immorality, intemperance, wickedness, Avarice. She was untrustworthy, contentious, and as a result, it was her place to obey. Now, you can be thankful I'm not quoting from Peter here. All right? <laughs> that is not Peter's view. What Peter does here is very culturally subversive for the day in which it was written. He basically says that when it comes to her relationship before God, a woman is free to follow Christ, even if her husband disapproves. She is her own moral agent. She is responsible before God for how she lives and whether she follows Christ. I remember, remember for this time, this would be very edgy stuff that Peter is saying here. Peter never ever says women are inferior to men. He never says they are intellectually inferior. He never even remotely implies they are more prone to sin or more prone to wickedness than men. And in fact, what we'll see next week is he actually says they are co-heirs of eternal life with their husband. And so he puts men and women on the same moral level. But it still leaves this serious dilemma. What does it really look like for a woman to be in Christ, to be in the faith, and yet potentially to be at odds with her own husband when it comes to religion? What is to be done? What should be expected of women in general when it comes to their behavior, especially toward unbelieving husbands? How should a woman dress? How should a woman compose herself? What should her way of life look like? Well, that's what Peter helps us with here tonight. And he does it by focusing on two aspects of the woman. And we'll do the same. He focuses on the visible person. And then he focuses on what he calls the hidden person. So the visible person, the hidden person. Those are our two points. 
So in other words, he helps these women in a tricky spot, but then he also gives directions that tell all women how they should regard their visible outward person and how they should regard their inner hidden person. So first, Peter focuses on the visible person. He focuses on the behavior and the looks of women. What should women look like? What should women act like? What sort of behavior is it that pleases God? Now, now at this point, I could go all over Scripture, right? We could just say, hey, let's have a field day. Let's go everywhere in the Bible. Let's talk about modesty. Let's talk about whatever um, issues you, you think are maybe important. But I want to stay with Peter here. Let's stay with what Peter says rather than sort of doing the grab bag approach at this point. What does this text tell us about what it means to be a godly woman? Well, primarily, he says three things. The first thing Peter focuses on is the goal and purpose of a godly wife, which is to win her husband. That's the word he uses. Even if some of them do not obey the word. That's what verse 1 says. And so Peter first wants these women to live evangelistically. All right, the visible person is an evangelistic person. Peter's goal isn't divided houses or families that are in conflict, because for Peter, the goal is a whole house that is united under the banner of Christ. And he understands the family exists for the glory of God. And so that means that if the wife is converted, she has a tremendous and weighty responsibility. She's like, she's like a herald and a representative of Jesus. And she has to do this in the sight of the one person who surely knows her better than anyone else. Who sees her day in and day out constantly. And all of this is done with one particular goal in mind. To win her Husband, How does that happen? Well, Peter says it doesn't happen by badgering. It doesn't happen by giving him lectures. It happens by consistently living as a Christian with a life that is aimed at the glory of God, lived out on a practical daily scale. St. Augustine's Mother Monica was faithful in praying for Augustine until he was converted later in his life. It was very famous how much she prayed for Augustine, how much she poured herself out praying for her son. But one of the things that Augustine also mentions is that she prayed fervently for her pagan husband, Patricius. And Augustine talks a lot about Patricius, and Patricius was a pagan influence on his son. Uh, Augustine had a, a godly influence in his life from his mother, but Patricius was not that. And I want you to hear how Augustine describes Monica's witness, the way that she lived before her pagan husband. Listen to this. She served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to you to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. It's a testimony to his mother. He's witnessed all this. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. It worked. This is what Peter's talking about here. She lived out what Peter talks about. She lived evangelistically before her husband and her son. 
What Peter says here is an important reminder of the purpose of the family. Um, Our home is meant to be a little evangelism center. Uh, Because parents and even grandparents think about this. If you spend time watching your grandkids, this is important for you too. Your neighbors, living before your neighbors is tough, right? Because they see you all the time. They see you next door. They see if you don't bag your garbage up. Uh, You know, they they see if you're a bad neighbor and you're always thumping music. And if you keep in weird hours, everybody knows it. It's tough to live with your neighbors. But at least your neighbors can go inside. If you start to annoy them, all right, they know if you're a weirdo or not, but they can ignore you. Our families are different, right? We have a special opportunity with our families to actually consistently and daily live before our families as we really are. And, and if we're faithful, God may be gracious and win our families, including wayward spouses or, or unbelieving children. And we can't control what happens to our children once they leave our homes. We really can't even control their hearts when they're in our homes. Um, You know, we we get them for a little while and then they leave the nest. But if children grow up to be good citizens and have good careers and they're provided for and they have all the benefits they need and their insurance is handled, (coughs) but they turn away from Christ... Because their parents didn't live what they taught. That is on us. That is on us. So just like wives have a duty to be evangelistically minded toward their husbands, all families in truth have a duty to be evangelistic toward each other. So when Peter tells wives to live evangelistically, it's a reminder to all of us that it's our duty to evangelize, to speak the gospel to all of those who are under our care and in our homes and show them that our religion is not a weekly performance, but it is actually a way of life, something that defines us. In terms of the sort of things that her husband can see, you know, we've just mentioned Peter focuses on the fact wives should be intentionally and obviously evangelistic in their focus. But Peter, Peter focuses on two other external things about the visible person of the wife. And one of those things he, is he calls, he calls it pure conduct. And we saw this earlier that in the ancient world, it was an assumed belief. It was an inherited belief that women were by nature immoral, uh, that women were naturally more wicked than their husbands. Uh, the New Testament, of course, knows nothing of the sort. This, uh, it is, isn't it interesting how for Peter, it's important that women prove this assumption to be untrue by their lives. Women can actually live this out and show that that's not true. How we conduct ourselves before our spouses and our families in general is so important. And unless you are a sociopath, it is impossible to fake it. The real person will come out. You may be able to come to church and be that person that your church thinks you are for a few hours, at least for a while. But it is just impossible Unless you are deranged to go home and keep the mask on all the time if you're wearing a mask. Wives and husbands both actually know what the other is really like when the observers are all gone. 
And Peter says, you know what will really win over a wayward spouse? Pure conduct. In fact, look at verse 1 again. He actually says that if you do what he says here, that a husband can be won without a word by the conduct of their wife. Pure conduct is important because it speaks louder than words. It speaks louder than badgering or sermons. How we live is more potent than how we speak or what we say. Anybody can talk about God, but not just anyone can live with pure conduct, especially not on a consistent basis. So Peter says a godly woman is someone whose life you can see is pure and who pleases God in her life. How do you do that? You do that by keeping God's law. You do that by loving your husband. You do it by caring for your household and by looking to the good of your neighbor, by repenting quickly when you do wrong. Pure conduct. Now, one other thing Peter says about the visible person of a Christian woman is that they shouldn't be focused on superficialities. That's my summary. That's my summary of what he says. Um, I have... uh, Somebody that I know, he told me this story. He said when he was a kid that he had a sibling who was playing outside and got pretty seriously injured. In fact, he didn't know how to help his brother. So he ran inside and he said, Mom, brother's hurt. We've got to come right now. And she went to the bathroom and put her makeup on before she would go out and before she would find out what was wrong with his brother. And he said it stuck with him for years. It stuck with him for years. Uh, Look closely what he says in verse 3. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Now that is tough, right? Because I bet if we took a poll in here, and I haven't been looking, but I'm just generally what I know about human beings, if I was to take a poll, uh, the ladies in this room have some kind of jewelry on, right? Uh, you know, whether you've got an earring in or whether you've got a necklace, whether you're wearing a ring, even I'm flashing a little bling up here, you know. Um, We've all got a little something on, probably. Um, And, you know, braiding your hair isn't all that common. We may have some braided hair in the room, although I didn't see any. Um, And, you know, the last time I looked, women tend to dress up for church, not down. So is Peter teaching here That braiding hair or wearing jewelry is sinful. No, he's not. I don't think it's a stretch to see why, because it would be proving too much. If Peter is saying that braiding your hair is wrong, or if he's saying that wearing gold jewelry is wrong, then he is also saying that wearing clothing is wrong. And I don't know any church that could survive if we made that rule. It's difficult to imagine a church that banned clothing, how long that would last. So I think it's proving too much to argue that he's outlawing these things. Rather, a sound conclusion to this question is actually to realize Peter's encouraging wives not to be obsessed with their looks, obsessed with their hair, obsessed with their clothing. Peter says, it's not as though wearing clothing or having gold or braiding your hair is sinful, But he's also saying these surface level things can consume you. They can become what you're all about. And they must not be the totality of all you are. A Christian wife especially needs to be more than just a pretty face. 
A Christian woman is to be a woman of substance. Someone who's not fixated on her looks. Someone who will still be of value someday when her looks fade. It may be a bit of a cliche, but her, her beauty cannot just be skin deep. That's what Peter is saying here. Instead, Peter says, let's stop being focused on the surface. Let's stop being focused on appearances. Instead, let's be focused on the hidden person. That's our second point this evening. The hidden person. Exactly the part that Peter says is so important. The part that does endure. Even when we age. Even when we don't look as young as we used to. Uh, I won't mention her name. But I had a conversation where we started realizing I got some gray hairs coming in. And I won't say who I was having that conversation with. But we started to realize we're aging together. We're watching the gray stuff come in. We're starting to see the signs. We're starting to feel creaky when we wake up in the mornings. We're realizing that we're not uh, as young as we used to be. Some of you might laugh because 37 doesn't seem very old to you. But when the gray hair starts showing up, you start thinking about it. And Peter says the part of us that endures has to be more than just the looks because they're not going to stay forever um, unless you are Cher. All right. And I think I know how that happened too. But <laughs> three subpoints that I want to draw your attention to, right? Three things about the hidden person, right? How should a, a woman live? She should live Reverently, That's the first point I want to mention under this. Peter says that should be the conduct of a Christian wife. Now, we have to talk about this. Because the ESV uses the word respectful. And the Greek phrase here is that she should literally conduct herself in fear. And, which is another word for reverent. So just like earlier in the book, Peter talked about how Christians should walk before God With reverence. And now he says the conduct of the wives should be reverent. Now, this is the thing that I want to make sure that that we don't make the mistake of here. It is not saying the wife should be reverent toward her husband. The the passage is not saying a wife should fear her husband. We are in Peter's writings, Peter never tells us to have fear toward another human being. He never tells us to have reverence for another human being. When Peter uses the word fear, he always is referring to God. He's always saying we should have a fear of God. And so Peter isn't necessarily saying women should be reverent toward their husbands. It says they should live reverently before the face of God. Each and every day. And here's why this is important. This is, this is not just about a word study. I have a point here. It comes down to motivation. Why do they live all the ways that Peter mentions in this passage. I'm going to quote from somebody. This is what he says. Wives do not submit in order to satisfy a husband's vanity or to promote his reputation. Neither do they submit to show how godly they are, nor to avoid conflict, nor to impress the neighbors, nor to manipulate their husbands. And not even because she thinks he is wise. She submits because of her relationship and trust in God. All right. So as a woman, the center of your devotional life is not meant to be your husband. 
He is not why you get up in the morning. He is not what defines you. He is not meant to fulfill you. While we were engaged, I, engaged, I remember uh, telling my wife, I wanted to be very clear with her that I would be quite a disappointment to her. And uh, I, have, I have kept my word, by the way. Uh, I, I, I did. I let her know. I said, I'm not going to fulfill you. I'm not going to satisfy you. I'm not going to fill you up. I'm not going to be that thing in your life that's going to make everything seem great. I I know that I'm not going to because the thing I said was you were made to live before the face of God, not before the face of Adam. You were made to rise up and follow the Lord, not me. And so as a woman, each and every day, when you rise up, remember your husband is important and you have responsibilities to him, but never as important to God. Your husband, or even in many cases, your lack of husband, does not define you, does not give you value. Rather, it is your God himself who gives you meaning and value and purpose and direction. And so the reverence that you have in life isn't centered or focused on your husband. It is centered and focused on God. Live reverently before God. That is the wellspring of everything that adorns you as a Christian woman. So just to be very applicable for a moment, if I haven't been already, at least the the God-centered approach that Peter takes to submission here gives us an important reminder that the submission of wives to their husbands isn't absolute, right? Anytime a husband tries to force his wife to break the moral law, just like with the civil authorities, the wife has a moral duty to disobey. If your husband commands you or tries to command you to break God's law, to do something that is morally reprehensible or immoral, you have a duty to disobey him. Why? Because first and foremost, your life is lived before God in a fear of God. Now, the second thing Paul says is that you should be adorned by godliness. Godliness. This is very closely connected to the last point, but it follows from it. Uh, A woman who lives with reverence for God is going to live out her godliness in her everyday life. Godliness is quite simply summed up as obeying and living out the law of God. And in this instance, Peter describes it as the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So again, Paul, Peter doesn't say this will be very precious in your husband's sight. He says this is very precious in God's sight because he's the one you're to live your life before. And Paul mentioned, Peter mentions gentleness. Oh, actually, Paul does mention gentleness as one of the fruits of the spirit. Gentleness is the opposite of harshness. It's the opposite of forcefulness. Um, When we're meek, when we're gentle, we are showing the watching world that ours is a heart that's been transformed. Jesus described himself as meek. Jesus lived out what it means to be a gentle person. Now, I saved maybe the trickiest point here for last, and that is Peter says a godly woman should live submissively. In the very first verse, Peter says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then he speaks of the submission of wives to their husbands again in verses 5 and 6. 
Uh, Roman society in Peter's day knew a thing or two about submission. Their whole goal was built around submission. The ruler of Roman society was an emperor that everyone was supposed to submit to. So their whole culture was built around it. And, And Peter has already recognized citizens should submit to the ruling authorities. And he's also observe the fact that slaves should submit to their masters. So there's a lot of submission going on in Roman society. But now he tells us the most fundamental unit of society, the family, functions in the same way by submission. Now in Roman society, wives submitted to their husbands because they were seen as inferiors. But we saw already Peter addresses women as their husband's equals. Peter doesn't buy into the message of his own day that women are intellectually deficient or that they're less moral than men. So how can he call women to still submit if they're equals? Is the submission of wives to their husbands compatible with the equality that they have in the New Testament? Part of what we know the New Testament does is it grounds the obedience of wives in theology, which doesn't change. So, for example, in Ephesians 5.22 to 33, Paul says the relationship of Christ to the church is the reason why wives submit to their husbands. So for the other New Testament writers outside of Peter, this is not a cultural thing. Wives don't submit to their husbands because, hey, we're living in Rome. This is the Greco-Roman context. When in Rome, submit. Um, That's not what he's saying at all. Now, some people try to say that women no longer need to submit because we no longer live in that Greco-Roman context. So they want to say Peter's making a culturally grounded argument here, but he's not because the scriptures don't argue for submission of wives based on the culture. They argue for it based on the nature of marriage and the nature of man and woman and the nature of God. So we've sort of introduced this idea of submission. And now I want to take one rabbit trail because I feel like it needs to be said. The notion of wives submitting to their husbands has been abused before. There are some husbands who believe they can do anything to their wives and they can always point to commands like this and say, you must submit to me, whatever I want to do. And... uh, If that's not happening to you, it might sound like an exaggeration, but sadly it's not. There are many who do practice uh, even wife punishment and things like that, and they say that it's God's will, but it isn't. But I want to insert this very important message here. If you are a wife who is in an abusive situation, Peter's call for you to submit is not a call to remain in danger. If you are in danger, if you are being abused, first and foremost, contact the proper authorities, especially if your husband has broken the law. Then once you are safe and once the authorities have been involved, please talk to the elders of the church. Make us aware of the situation. We as elders of the church are not a civil authority. We have no authority to punish anyone who commits, uh, uh, breaks the law. That is not the place of the church. We cannot punish, at least in a physical sense, an abusive husband. But what we can do is give spiritual support, moral support, and material support if necessary. And we also have a duty to bring serious church discipline against any man who harms his wife or children. 
The reason I say this is I do have this fear. Um, I, don't, I don't say this. Uh, my, here's my fear. If I don't say this, some women are going to feel obligated to remain in a dangerous situation. And that is not at all the type of submission Peter has in mind. Let's look at how Peter states the command to submit. That's my rabbit trail. All right, that's, I always want you to know that submission is not an excuse for abuse, nor is it a command to remain in danger. Now, let's look at how Peter states the command to submit and, and, and the example that he gives. Look at verses five to six. He says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Peter gives us Sarah as an example. So in other words, he goes further back than himself. He wants us to know that he's not reinventing the wheel here. This is an age-old practice of God's people for wives to submit to their husbands. Again, he is not grounding this in Greco-Roman culture. He goes way before Greco-Roman culture. He goes all the way back to the beginning of the covenant of grace back there with Abraham. And so Peter's point here is not that women today should still call their husband master or Lord, though I have to admit it has a ring to it. Uh, the point, the point is Sarah showed her submission to Abraham by using terms of respect. She spoke to her husband with respect. She deferred to his leadership. She understood this isn't going to work if our marriage is a tug of war between two people and neither of us knows when to give. All right, this isn't going to work if it's built like that. Um, I can't remember. It's, it's not an exact quote, but I, I remember Tim Keller once saying that, that marriage is sort of like a democracy where the husband gets the tie-breaking vote. Uh, you know, we really want to be in agreement as much as we possibly can. But at the end of the day, there always will come a moment or there often will come a moment where something has to be done. Some decision has to be made and you don't want to have to put your foot down uh, and you should do it as rarely as possible. Rather, you should both be on the same page as much as you can. But at the end of the day, to be a godly wife, Peter says, means that you submit to that tie-breaking vote, even if you don't like it. The notion of submission in our day is not very popular, right? In the Greco-Roman culture, it was normal. It was, it was understood. But here we are. We're democratic, right? Everybody gets a vote. We count all the votes, or we hope that we count all the votes. And we don't really have that same mentality anymore. And so it's more difficult for us to even talk about the idea of submission. The idea that a woman would submit to her husband is difficult, but I would suggest this. Peter takes some of the sting out of it in two ways. One, and and we'll see this next week, is that God puts a weighty calling on the husband. Not just on the wife. There are obligations for every husband that can be very weighty as well. And when husbands fail at the responsibilities they've been given, the fallout can be terrible for a family. Uh, Even if they're not identical obligations to what wives are called to. And the other thing Peter says is that submission is something that holy women did. This is a road that's been traveled before. Sarah did it before, and so did other wives of old. And so as we close, though, I would do one more thing when it comes to the notion of submission. 
The example of women of old is, is precious. It's important. It reminds us that Scripture has been consistent in its teaching. But there's never a more important example we can have than Jesus himself. And so because there are very few times when you're more like Christ than when you willingly and consciously and decisively submit. One of the greatest models of submission we see in all of the Bible is in Luke chapter 22. Peter's praying in the garden of Gethsemane. And as he's praying in the garden and as he's weeping at the knowledge that the cross is approaching, our Lord himself practices perfect submission. He says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. The son is presented with the plan and command of God and what he sees is terrifying. And it's in this moment that submission becomes so necessary and so precious. You see, Jesus has a human will. and It's not identical to his divine will. In fact, his human will doesn't agree with his divine will here. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So for you, submission to your husband may be easy. He may be a godly person. He may be a worthy man, the sort of person you'd follow to the ends of the earth. You would do anything for him. But Peter recognizes he may be calling some women to a difficult road. Because not all men are good and worthy husbands. So wives, especially this evening, he calls you to practice what he practiced first. He calls you to walk the road that he walked. So let's pray. Lord, I pray for the women of this church, not only for the wives, but for those who have been wives, those who expect to someday be wives, for those who are single, either by choice or by your providence at the moment. I pray that you would be shaping all of these women to live their lives before your face each and every day. Shape them and Mold them after your image so that they live their lives with reverence for you. And also, Lord, because of your grace and mercy, we ask that you would make them holy in their practice, gentle in their dispositions, and showing forth the fruits of the Spirit in their lives. Let us all be people who reflect you and your character in our families and in our marriages. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.